Good afternoon and welcome to Africa.com's Crisis Management for African Business Leaders. This will be the fourth session in a five-part series of this program. My name is Soku Sibia from Africa.com. It's my pleasure to introduce Africa.com Chairman and CEO, Teresa Clark. Thank you. I'd like to welcome you for joining us for this webinar series, Crisis Management for African Business Leaders. Today is the fourth session, Crafting Strategy in the Face of Uncertainty, which is moderated by Dr. Andy Zalecki, Senior Lecturer of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. In addition, we'd like to acknowledge that Harvard Business School has made all of its resources associated with the coronavirus available for free. This is a treasure trove of information, of case studies, of webinars, of podcasts, articles from the Harvard Business Review, articles from Harvard Business School's Working Knowledge Platform, as well as a series of podcasts and, and just a huge amount of information that has all been developed over the last eight weeks and is quite relevant and germane to the topic of crisis management during COVID-19. So we invite all of you to visit that website, um, hbs.edu slash coronavirus. When you registered, we asked you what your greatest concern was with respect to COVID-19. This is a response that we read out of all of them we thought really captured what today's topic is about. One of you wrote in your response that I'm concerned about how we plan for the future. Our governments are not strong enough to shelter us, and so understanding the macroeconomy in which our business will be operating is tough. Interest rates, foreign exchange, they all play a role in how we approach the market. At the same time, the government doesn't know how to plan because they are looking to business to fill gaps. Government and private sector are looking at each other with a puzzled look on our faces. How do we resolve this circular quandary? So that is the topic that we are here to talk about today. And now I will introduce you to our moderator and to our panelists. I'll start with Andy Zalecki, who is someone I've known for over three decades. We went to university together. We were contemporaries again at Harvard Law School. He and his wife, Dina, and daughter Zoe are among my closest friends. As a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, he oversees the school's global field immersion program. And at this time, he was meant to be leading 100 Harvard MBA students for practical business experience in Rwanda, Ghana, and South Africa. But instead, he is here with us virtually in Africa through this medium. Andy, thank you very much for your commitment and the investment in time and energy that you have made um, for this session today. Nalita Fakudi is my newest friend on this program, having only known her for about five years or so. We met when she was first still chairman at Sassel Mining Board and on the board of Woolworths. Thank you very much, Nalita, for joining us today. Achaleki is another friend that I've known for over a decade. In addition to his leadership of McKinsey, which um, is tremendous, tremendous and his prolific research and writing for McKinsey, he, along with Fred Swanaker, a speaker on our first session on leadership, founded the African Leadership Academy. Acha is deeply committed to the continent and to development in particular in education and on all social sectors. Kungio Peke is another um, friend from over a decade. And she knows because I've told her many times that she is my professional role model right after my own mother and grandmother. Kungi's story, as I like to tell it, is that she studied at Columbia University in New York. She earned a master's in electrical engineering and she went to work for US telecoms giant Verizon where she was rolling out broadband throughout middle America. While she was doing that, she realized that she had the skills to do something that was badly needed back at home in Nigeria. And so what did she do? Well, she did what anyone would do, 
right? She went out and raised a couple hundred million US dollars and she brought underwater cable from Portugal to West Africa and now distributes it across Nigeria. Um, how is that for a female superhero? Funke, thank you so much for being with us today. I always um, appreciate your wisdom and I'm so happy that you are willing to share it with the thousands of people who have joined us for this webinar today. Our last panelist is Rob Shooter. I first met Rob over 20 years ago when I founded a program called the Student Sponsorship Program of South Africa. And since that time, his career has just continued to rise and now sitting as group president and CEO of MTN. It's wonderful to see someone who does good also doing well. I would like to hand this over to Andy Zalecki and allow him to tackle the very tough issues that we're talking about today, for which we know there are no easy answers. But if we could have the right group of people on the phone to help us think about how to craft strategy in uncertainty, we certainly have leaders who can help us do that today. So Andy, it's over to you now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Teresa. And thank you so much for this invitation. I feel very privileged to be here. We have a really important topic, I think, to discuss today, and it was captured very well in the uh, one quote that Teresa showed uh, at the outset. And um, we have an amazing group of panelists who are going to help us work through this. COVID-19 is an extraordinary disruption of almost everything, and the level of uncertainty is extraordinary. The virus itself is a novel virus. The event is a novel event of really almost unimaginable magnitude. We had Ken Chenault, the celebrated former CEO chairman of, of American Express, uh, with us for a seminar at Harvard Business School a couple of weeks back. And Ken said in his estimation, albeit from an American perspective, that the magnitude of this event is like the global financial crisis plus 9-11 times three. Think about that. Now, it's so easy to understand in light of that, that survival is top of mind for businesses and for communities and perhaps for our societies. So this is not the time when uh, everybody naturally uh, makes the time for thinking long-term about the future, but that's really the essence of strategy. Uh, and that's where this topic comes in. Uh, we have amazing people on this panel who will help us work through this. And we'll come to them uh, in just a moment. I wanna take a couple of seconds to go through a couple of slides. Thank you, this is our agenda. So the, in terms of the panel discussion, we're splitting it up into two pieces. The first will focus at firm level and strategy in that context. The second will focus on society level, which in some cases will mean national, it could mean regional, it could be the whole continent. Uh, in between the two of those, we'll do a poll, a couple of poll questions, uh, and then we'll preserve some Q&A at the end, finally some closing comments. The original title that was proposed for this session was strategic planning, and that's a term that uh, I think has value, but is uh, a little bit out of favor, in part because it evokes the notion that plans can be uh, produced about the future, and they seem so uh, hard to do, almost impossible to do in the present circumstances of, of extraordinary uncertainty. And here's a quote from uh, General Eisenhower uh, back in the day, plans are worthless, 
but planning is everything. I think that captures very well what we're talking about in this session. The boxer Mike Tyson also has a point of view about this. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, Mike Tyson and General Eisenhower don't come up in the same conversation all that often, but this is one instance where they do. Um, we've all been punched in the mouth by COVID-19, and we're all having to adjust our plans about the future accordingly. So what is strategy? There are a lot of definitions, a lot of different schools within the strategy realm. At Harvard Business School, in the required curriculum course on strategy for first-year students, this is how we define it. Strategy is an integrated set of choices that positions an organization within its environment to achieve its vision over the long term. And there are a lot of important points embedded in that. I'll just emphasize a couple. There is opportunity to choose, to make choices. It has something to do with matching an organization and its capabilities with opportunities in the environment with a view to achieving a vision, and it takes the long-term view. A very prominent strategy scholar, Richard Rumelt, I think puts it very well, a different perspective. The most basic idea of strategy is strength applied to the most promising opportunity. Uh, so that is evocative of the uh, SWOT uh, framework that I think uh, most of you are probably familiar with, strengths, weaknesses internally uh, to the organization, threats and opportunities in the environment. And here's a definition that might seem a little bit out of place here, but I think it's uh, very relevant. Definition of entrepreneurship that comes from uh, HBS Professor Emeritus Howard Stevenson. Entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity without regard to the resources currently controlled. And I think what that's trying to get at is that the focus is initially on the opportunity, the, the most significant uh, opportunities of greatest magnitude. And you leave it to uh, another day to figure out how do we amass the resources that we need to realize on that opportunity. And this has a lot to do with a strategy, I think, especially in these very uncertain circumstances. Uh, we're going to start with Ache Leke, who is the chair of McKinsey Africa, as you heard from Teresa. And uh, before we get to our panel discussion at firm level, Ache is going to take a few minutes and walk us through some very important information uh, and, uh, and guidance. The information is an update. Uh, on COVID-19 and Africa, and African business and economy. Uh, and then he is going to give us the benefit of his own and McKinsey's uh, outstanding thinking about strategy with some very prescriptive guidance. Like Andy said, uh, what I was hoping to do to get us all started is talk about three things. One is about where we are from an uh, epidemic perspective in Africa. Um, Second is what is the economic impact of this epidemic on the continent today? And third is, you know, the topic that we want to talk about is what you all as company, company CEOs and uh, senior executives should be doing um, to manage this epidemic. So on the, on the next slide, you'll see where we are today, right? The reality, and this was updated this morning, we have about 50,000 cases on the continent today. Um, it's growing, so we've been tracking this every day. We can see the map get bluer and bluer uh, over time. Um, but the truth is, as you can see on the right, we are 
um, we have not seen the exponential inflection point yet in Africa. And there are a number of questions about why that is, right? So is it because of the you know, early and quick measures our governments have put in place uh, uh, to, to protect all of us? Is it because of the ECG vaccine? Is it because of the weather? Is it because of the youthful population? The truth is nobody really knows. It may be a combination of all of that. The one thing we know is we're just not testing enough. It's very clear. So as of this morning, we had done about 900,000 tests across, you know, across the continent. Just to give you a sense on that, you know, South Africa had done about 260,000 tests, while Nigeria had done 20,000, right, roughly. And so, you know, so South Africa, if you look at the number, South Africa does about 450 tests per every 100,000 people. And we're very excited because South Africa is a leader. Ghana is also another strong leader. Nigeria does 10 for every 100,000 people. But in the midst of where the U.S. actually does, 100, does uh, 1,500 tests for every 100,000 people. So there's a big dis dis discrepancy here. And so one thing is clear, we need to scale up testing significantly across the continent. Um, and, and a lot of that is, is starting to happen, but that's where we stand. Now, what does this then mean for us? And you'll see on the next slide, um, the challenges we're facing. Um, and when we started first interviewing uh, uh, a bunch of clients around, around the world to understand from, from a, uh, how long they believe this, this, the epidemic is gonna last, about 50% of clients we talked to, when well, we've developed these nine scenarios, Think this epidemic is gonna you know have quite a prolonged downturn right so that's anywhere between a year to two years so as we start to think about implications for you all for your businesses you know having a mindset of you know how long this could take is 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 really important that's globally now let's bring it to africa and on the next slide you'll see what's happening on the continent the truth is we're facing three crises not one we talk about the 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 covid19 crisis but we're facing three crises the first one is a global pandemic uh, and that uh, manifests itself in a disruption in supply chain. So for, for every dollar of manufactured product in Africa today, we import about 40 to 50 cents of inputs, right? Just, uh, and quite a, few, quite a bit of that from China. So that has been disrupted. Secondly, of course, is the lower demand for our exports, you know, whether it's for our cocoa out of Ghana or it's oil out of Nigeria, or it's flowers out of Kenya, or even cars out of Morocco, you know, you know, the demand has actually uh, 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 diminished significantly across the world. So that's the first crisis. The second is the Africa pandemic, right? So the movement of people has significantly affected uh, tourism. Tourism is probably the sector that has been the most affected across the continent. Uh, it is eight and a half percent of Africa's GDP today. In a country like Seychelles, it's 40 percent of GDP. So just imagine the impact on that country. The second piece is the disruption in ways of working. So, you know, the household income dis disruptions and reductions because of the lockdowns uh, and because of the disruptions, how we're working. And that then has an impact on household expenditure and business expenditure. So that's really the Africa pandemic. And the third is oil. Oil, you know, oil has had a significant impact in many countries. The Minister of Finance in Nigeria yesterday spoke about how their projections of that oil receipts are going to go down 90% for 2020-90. Right. So huge impact. And oil, by the way, in Nigeria, 60% of government revenues, right? So it just give you a sense for the impact. It's actually a net positive impact for importing, importing countries. But those are the three challenges we face. When you pull all that together, you'll see on the next page some of the modeling we, we've done to understand the economic impact of this crisis. We've modeled um, so far about uh, you know, eight, nine countries that account for about 70% of Africa's GDP. And then we extrapolated. And we looked at four scenarios, not the nine, but the f just four. One is, and it's based on how 
the, the transmission globally of the virus and then the transmission within Africa. And we only have one scenario, as you can see, where uh, growth across the continent remains positive this year, and that's really marginal. But we actually believe that that scenario is less and less likely. We think what's most likely is that, you know, for the first time in 25 years, Africa is going to go into a recession as a whole continent. And that's what you've seen the World Bank also projecting. Now, about 50% of that is due to the African pandemic. So it's really due to the reduction in household expenditures and business expenditures. About 30% of that is due to the lower demand for our exports to the global pandemic. And about 20% of that is due to oil, right? And as you can imagine, that makes varies per country. So now Nigeria is, you know, primarily oil driven. So South Africa is primarily the household expenditure, the exports and the tourism driven. But that's on the economy, right? What does that mean for companies and for jobs? We've also sized that and you'll see that on the next page. Um, uh, to give some context, we have, we have about 450 million Africans today in the workforce. About 150 million are formerly employed and about 300 million are informally employed. Of the 150 million, we project that about 10 to 20 million, so call it 15 on average, will just lose their jobs, right? So that's 10%. And we're starting to see these job losses in many of our economies already. We then project that about 30 to 35 million will have in some ways their salaries reduced, either because they're working fewer hours, because they've agreed to take a pay cut. So about a third of all formal jobs are gonna be, we project are gonna be affected by this crisis. Of the 300 million informal jobs, um, about 150 million are in subsistence agriculture. And we think you know, most of the other 150 will be affected. So roughly a third of all jobs, whether formal or informal, we believe are at risk. So it's a crisis like we've never, never seen before. And so that's the context for what's happening on the continent. Now, what are, com what are companies doing about it and what should you be doing about it? On the next page, you'll start to see a bit how we think and how we're supporting our clients uh, 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 address this crisis. And especially when you, when you, when you face a, a real crisis that you need to quickly uh, get your hands around. The first is really understanding your starting position. So what is your starting, what is your starting position? What are the key drivers of your business today? Where are you on those drivers? What has been the trend? Were you on an upswing? Were you on a downswing even before the crisis hit? So really getting a grasp of the starting position is, is hugely important. The second, of course, then is developing scenarios, right? How could things unfold? How could things play out? And it's interesting here because what, what I found in many of our African clients, uh, they're actually not that open to developing a worst case scenario. I think you know, as, as Africans, we're, we're optimists, right? You know, tomorrow is always gonna be a better day. And if not, God is there to save us, right? So we're very optimists and we're not uh, open to developing really a worst case. So what if your revenues get hit 40%? What if they get hit 80%, right? Can you still survive that? How much runway do you have to survive that? We saw um, uh, when we this, in the lockdowns in South Africa, a lot of people went and, and stockpiled on, um, on toilet paper. And the equivalent of toilet paper for businesses is cash, right? So how much cash do you have? And you really need to run the scenarios and run it uh, uh, all the way to really worst case, right? So, you, so you're prepared for that. The third and the fourth is then start to say, okay, you know, if, you know, what do I then do? What are the actions that I put in place based on these different scenarios, right? So, and, and creating a, a real dashboard so you can understand, you know, what the actions are and, and what are the trigger points that you're going to need, right? But, you know, if this happens, we're going to do this. If that happens, we're going to do that. So having that is, 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 is actually critical. And finally, the trigger points. So really understanding what are these trigger points that will help you understand which scenario you're, 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 is, is, is likely to be unfolding. And then you already have your plan to react to, those, to, the, to that scenario. 
So at a conceptual level, this is, this is how um, uh, companies uh, should be thinking about it, and we hope you are. On the next page, you know, there's some things you need to do. You know, as you do this, you have to make sure you do it quickly, right? Things change very fast, so you have to be quite adaptable, right? Um, again, perfection, as you always say, is the enemy of good. So make sure it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, if it's directionally correct, it's enough because you'll see on the third point, you're going to have to iterate very quickly. So many of our clients cycle through this every two weeks to really understand what has changed or what, what do we need to update to uh, uh, some of our thinking and, and some of our, uh, of our decisions. And they need to be quite flexible uh, in, in how you allocate resources to deal with it. Uh, just a few more pages, and then, uh, and then I guess we'll go into the, the discussion with the, the, the panel. Um, a big strategic question that many of our clients are asking, and I guess you'll have to ask yourself, is really, um, you know, what is the end game? Where would your business be at the end of all of this, right? And, and, and you'll see on the next page two dimensions to it. So really understanding the impact of the disruption to your business model, right? Uh, and and the extent and how much it will be disrupted. And then the impact. So one is, you know, how much could it disrupt your business model? And if so, what is the impact? And you'll see a typical, you know, sort of two by two here. You know, on the top right, you can, you can imagine sectors like aviation in Africa or oil and gas in Nigeria, where you have to completely shape a whole new sector coming, coming, coming out, of, out of the crisis. On the top left, you'll imagine sectors like, like apparel, right, where it's potentially more how do you very quickly shift from offline to online and serving clients uh, most effectively that way. The bottom right, you can imagine sectors like banking in some countries where you're gonna see these sectors being restructured, probably some consolidation happening in some of these sectors. And the bottom left, there are some sectors that are actually less affected by the crisis, right? The very few that are not affected at all. But whether you talk about healthcare, whether you talk about healthcare, pharmaceutical manufacturing, some elements of retail, grocery especially, um, we have Rob here from MTN, some elements of the telecom sector, we can, we'll hear from him as well, right? We're really understanding this matrix, you know, where your sector is, and, this is gonna, and we're actually drawing this uh, for different countries to really understand what that means will be very important for you uh, as a company. Now, finally, I just want to talk about, you know, how do you then win coming out of this, right? And we've done a lot of research uh, to understand, you know, people who come out on top out of crisis, what, what do they do well during the crisis and post the crisis? And we call them resilient, right? And, and it's interesting because what we found is companies that do better during the crisis actually outperform even more so the competitors post the crisis. So it's very important. The decisions you make during the crisis are very important for your long-term future. And, and how do they do that? Um, and, and so what do you need to do? One is, you know, making sure, you know, you're efficient, right? So these companies are saying, look, we, you know, this crisis may, may, may not affect us, but let's sometimes use it as an opportunity to drive more efficiency. So, you know, crisis could then be an impetus to say, how much more cost can I take out of my business? Maybe these are costs you've been thinking and planning to take out for a while, but this will then push you to do that. Two is, you know, they're very quick at saying, what parts of the business can I divest, right? What parts of the business do I, do I not need to hold on to? They don't fit in what I was doing. I may have been thinking about it already. How can I quickly, quickly divest? They're then even quicker on the third part to say, what can I actually buy, right? So really thinking through, you know, you know, who should I acquire or why? It could be because you want to drive consolidation and change of the market structure. We've seen clients do this for innovation purposes, right? To say, look, you know what, there are a number of startups you know, that are struggling today. Maybe it's the right time to go and, and, and buy them to actually build more innovation uh, within the business. Um, and fourth is with the point we talked about uh, earlier about being a lot more flexible in how you reallocate resources, right? But the message here is, you know, you, know you, you want to be a resilient company because if you are and you really win during the crisis, 
you have a much bigger chance of winning, of winning, of winning Pulitzer prices. The other thing resilience do, and this is sort of, I think, one of my uh, one or two last pages, is they're able to think about both the crisis and the and the getting to next normal at the same time, right? Too many companies just focus on the crisis, what we call resolve, resilience, what do I need to do? You know, how much money do I have? How can I, you know, uh, uh, um, make sure, you know, I survive, right? But again, the winners are able to find a way to say, yes, I have to do that, but I have to start to reimagine what this is going to look like going forward. What is going to change? What is Africa going to look like? And we'll come back to that, I think, the second part of the discussion. What are the opportunities that this, that, that this uh, crisis uh, creates for me? Reimagine the future. And so what do I need to do now to capture those opportunities? And so just to end, to say how they do that is really typically, it's hard to be able to do that yourself, right? The same person thinking that. So they would typically have a, a business, you know, a crisis response team. We have a, typically set up a nurse center responsible for that. As you see on the next page, and they have a number of, of different teams. There's a team that is focused on the work from home. There's a team that's, of course, focused on business continuity. There's a team on supply chain. There's a team on how you engage with, with your clients. But in addition to that team, and that's on page 12, if you can go to that page, they also put, to put in place a plan ahead team, right? So a team that's going to really help them think through, you know, let's plan ahead. What, what you know, what's going to happen? How could this how can we take advantage of the crisis? How would my sector change? And then what do I need to do about it? So that's, that's just, you know, a, a bit of a, a, a few concepts I wanted to share with you. So again, talking about, you know, what's happening with the crisis in Africa, talking about the economic impact and, you know, what, what it's doing to our, to our economies and to businesses. But more importantly for this discussion today is what we would recommend as, as McKinsey, and uh, hopefully many of you are doing this already, that you should do to emerge as winners out of the crisis. I'll hand back to Andy. I'm going to now go to Nolita, Rob, and Funke, and I'm going to ask several questions. Uh, I'm grouping them, um, and I uh, will sort of round robin the groups of questions. Let me start with three quick questions uh, directed to Nolita. Nolita, please just take a minute to say a bit more about your company, uh, the businesses you're in, and the strategic positioning, if you could articulate that in a sentence or two prior to COVID-19. Thank you very much, Dr. Andy, and good day to the panelists that I have. Um, I do have slides, uh, one or two, to talk to introducing who we are as the company. And all I want to say is that um, it's important that everyone knows who they are and what their goals are and what they stand for. And the fact that the, the coronavirus should not be defining how you respond to it. Uh, with that, uh, let me first um, just go through the first slide that I have, slide number three, please. So Anglo-American is a leading global mining company, which operates about 33 different sites globally. And we are mainly in South America, in Southern Africa, as well as Australia. And we've got a diversified mining uh, or minerals portfolio that covers anything from diamonds to copper to iron ore and even coals. We are a leading uh, mining company in South Africa with four business divisions or business units. Uh, it's Anglo Platinum, Kumba Iron Ore, DPS South Africa, as well as Anglo Coal. And two of our businesses 
are actually listed on the China Space Stock Exchange. That's Anglo Platinum and also Kumba Iron Ore. And in terms of the life of Anglo American globally, Southern Africa is very important because we contribute up to 45% of the global revenues as Southern Africa. We also contribute about 49% of the profits for the group. And in terms of our employee footprint, out of the 73,000 employees we have globally, about 50,000 of them are in Southern Africa. And when I'm talking about Southern Africa, in Platinum, for example, we operate mainly in Limpopo as well as in Rustenburg. However, we do have a mine in Zimbabwe. And with Kumba Iron Ore, we are operating in the Northern Cape province. And DPS is also in Limpopo. And with coal, in, which is mainly thermal coal, we operate in Pumalanga. So our employee footprint is quite broad. Our stakeholders, key and integral to whatever we do, our people, the government, communities, labor unions, and even our service providers. And therefore for us, it's important that whatever we do, we never compromise our license to operate and specifically our social license to operate. Uh, and our strategy as an organization, if I may continue, is that it's, it's mainly uh, anchored within three pillars, portfolio, innovation, and people. So the portfolio for us is a diversified portfolio that gives us the leverage to be able to cover different commodities, even to be able to survive and be robust during, during different commodity cycles. Uh, and also the fact that we're broadly geographically spread across the globe, that's very helpful. The second element of our strategy being innovation. Innovation and technology is key for us from a safety perspective, from a sustainability perspective, how we mine, making sure that in all respects we mine in a way that not only gives us better productivity, but also that we don't compromise our sustainability goals. How we use water, how we use energy, and also the land use amongst other things that we do. The third element of the strategy being people. Our strategy revolves around people because it's a labor intensive uh, environment that we're talking about and also the role of stakeholders in our business is critical. We are highly regulated uh, industries, so our engagements with governments are important. And also communities that we operate within are key for us in what we do. And, and, and therefore, at the heart of our strategy is our purpose as an organization. And our stated purpose is to reimagine mining to improve people's lives. So that talks to the future, that talks to the fact that at the end of every mine life cycle, we want that community to be sustainable beyond the life of mine. And therefore how we mine, how we use innovation and technology is also important. And obviously how we engage with stakeholders using and underpinned by our values is very critical. 
So Excellent, Lisa. And I will come back to you. Um, uh, Rob, I want to turn to you. And if you could just say a couple words about uh, MTN. And uh, I'll just give you rapid fire the other two pieces uh, to this. Uh, if you could characterize how big a disruption has COVID-19 been for you and how, if at all, do you think differently about the primary stakeholders of MTN as a result of, of uh, COVID-19? Right. Thanks very much, Andy, and it's uh, a pleasure to be on the panel. MTN is a telecommunications group. Uh, we describe ourselves as a digital operator. Uh, we operate across uh, 21 countries, 17 in Africa, four in the Middle East. We have uh, around 18,000 very uh, committed and fired up MTNers, and we service uh, 250 million customers across those geographies. Um, the strategy, in, in, in very simple terms, uh, if you look at the slide that we've put up, is to say that we are really trying to do three things at the same time. Um, on the left there is managing this evolution from mobile businesses that were built largely to deliver voice services to consumers at the start of the industry, but over time now moved to provide you know, high-speed mobile broadband and also services and solutions to both enterprise and, and wholesale customers. And we call that the evolving telco. At the same time, though, if you look at the bottom, we have you know, huge aspirations to be a player in mobile financial services. Uh, our markets are characterized by around one-third uh, financial inclusion. We already have 36 million active mobile money customers. And you know, we have plans to expand the countries, expand the services, and really you know, become a scale player in mobile financial services. And then the third dimension on the right is to be a scale player in digital. And that's really saying that we don't only want to build these um, information highways, mobile and fixed networks, but we also want to play a, a central role in the digital services themselves. So we've been building consumer services like Ayoba, instant messaging platform for Africa, music time, and also enterprise services. And the key part of this picture is that actually we are not really an aggregation of these three things. They are a combined um, focus on building the digital operator, really leveraging three very critical advantages we've got across the markets, which is our networks, our distribution infrastructure, and, um, and our ability to register customers in scale. So we're very um, excited about that. Uh, you know, your second question, how much of a challenge has, has COVID been? Uh, it's been an enormous challenge because it affects just about every part of the business. You know, on the one hand, it affects what customers need from us because with the lockdowns, the social distancing, the work from home, the, the requirements of customers, you know, they're even more dependent on these reliable networks. Um, it also affects, of course, how we work, the internal workings of the company, things like moving our, you know, our, our call centers, uh, you know, to be able to work from home, our own people. And then I guess the third dimension is that it's having a profoundly negative effect on the economies and the markets in which we operate with all manner of volatility of exchange rates, um, uh, et cetera. Um, I think your third question, uh, Andy, was, you, you know, is it really affecting, you know, who we are and the important stakeholders? And, you know, we like to describe MTN as a belief-driven organization. You know, and the belief is that everyone deserves the benefits of a modern connected life. So, of course, a modern connected life is people being able to access all the benefits of the power of the internet and, of course, to be financially included through mobile financial services. 
And in a way, what, uh, what, what the COVID situation has done is it's really you know, accelerated or amplified that need for connectivity. Um, so I think in many respects, it's, it's, um, you know, it's really supported and, and validated the, the very strategy we are on, which is to provide this digital and, and financial inclusion. Um, and, you know, I think it's particularly pronounced because, of course, if you think about what's been happening in the last six weeks or so, all of the activity that took place in the physical world um, has moved into the digital world. So schools are empty, people are learning from home. Universities are empty, people are learning from home. The streets are empty, traffic is on the internet. We're on a Zoom call instead of being in a big auditorium. So that's you know, really put a lot of load and pressure on, on our networks, which is something that we really you know, need, to, need to respond to. Um, I think the third element is one stakeholder that's come very much to the fore in this crisis has been the education sector. Um, because, um, you, you know, it is so important that we can allow our children to continue being educated, that we don't lose an academic year, the same for universities. And of course, in, in Africa, you, you know, many people lead you know, difficult lives and they don't have, you know, all of the tools that we would have to be on a call like this. And so actually this has been, I think, the sector that we've had the most you know, concentrated engagement with in the last while. You know, things like can we zero rate educational sites? Can we support teachers? Can we support digital infrastructure for students who you know, can't afford laptops or PCs or, or, or iPads or whatever it, it may be? So in a way, it's been quite a humbling experience. It shows the dependency on the technology. It shows the real impact we can have. And, uh, you know, we feel very responsible, um, you know, to make sure that we play our part in, in dealing with the situation. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, let's go now to Funke. And the same questions, please, uh, rapid fire. Just a, a minute about your company and your strategic positioning to this point. Um, what COVID-19, how big a, how, what magnitude an event for you in your business and any effect on how you conceive of your stakeholders. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and um, thank you, Teresa, um, for the opportunity to continue to share experiences as female entrepreneurs trying to bridge the digital divide in Africa. Um, it's really a meaningful one for me. Um, main one is a communications and data center services company that's been operating in West Africa for about 10 years. We are a purely business to business company that started with the development of a submarine cable company um, linking Europe to West Africa. And since then, we've expanded to offer services in 10 countries in West Africa, where we service all the major telecommunications operators and I would say 80% of the largest companies, be they multinationals, local enterprises, and um, regional corporates, governments, educational institutions. So COVID um, has really had a, a mixed impact. Obviously, there is that rush to digital, and we always wondered over the past 10 years, as pioneers in, in building um, infrastructure and trying to bridge the digital divide in West Africa, how much of an impact we're having. And clearly it shows the mixed impact. 
for the largest enterprises, they needed the reassurance that their services were going to be sustained and secured through this period. And in fact, they wanted to consume more. But the lower end um, of the food chain, and for some of our sectors, be they hotels, airlines, um, educational institutions, they have struggled. So, um, and it, it is the same across Nigeria as it is the other countries in which we operate in, in the region. Thank you. Uh, back to you, Nolita, and I'd like to ask you two questions, please. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your process in doing strategy, uh, particularly longer term strategy, how that may have changed process wise um, as a result of the COVID-19 disruption? And then secondly, more substantively, uh, what do you think the next normal will look like uh, in its most important respect that matters to your businesses? Thanks, Andy. So, uh, as, again, as a global company, the decision that was made was that we needed a response process that was regionalized because the way the virus has been moving from one region to the next, we have seen it evolve in front of our eyes, and therefore it's, it's important that we manage that uh, at a regional level and perspective. And secondly, it meant that from a governance framework, um, we make sure that the line of sight between the board of directors as well as the management is very close because you agree the mandate and the framework upfront. And for us, the strategy was very clear that we wanted and the goal was to make sure that we have a resilient business and also thriving communities that will be able to not only re re recover from this particular um, uh, pandemic, but also respond in a way that makes sure that we thrive beyond um, the virus's uh, timeline. And so we, 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 we then, um, within the South African perspective and the management board, we have set up a framework which is an integrated framework. And that's why I showed earlier on the four different business units, because as you can imagine with two businesses that are listed and independent in many respects, and also two that are not, there are certain levels of strategy that we have to integrate across and also make sure that you get alignment and synergies for everybody to be able to, to leverage what you have. And maybe I can briefly just talk to the slide that we have put in as a framework that has uh, informed our strategy in this particular instance, it's slide number five. The call to action for us is that mitigating the spread of the virus is about protecting lives as well as securing livelihoods. Because without protecting people's lives, our employees in the communities uh, it doesn't matter what kind of economy you have because by then you have nothing. But on the other hand, as early as we all realize, you need to secure some of the economy so that you don't shut, your, shut yourself out completely from all supply chains and all economic activity. That then we get to a point that when we have recovered, we find that we actually don't have 
any economy to talk about. So our strategy framework has been really focused and also talking to specific issues that reinforce and, and underpin our approaches and organization quickly. The five key areas that for us we've looked at, business continuity planning, that has been clear for everybody. We've got to make sure that we have that. And that's about really ensuring the resilience and also the thriving communities that we spoke to. With employees, ensuring employees safety and health is important. As an industry, safety is a key point for us, but now overlaying the, the point around health and also the, 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 the employee health whilst at work and the kind of protocols that you put in place for people to be operating whilst we have this pandemic has been important. And engagement with labor and other stakeholders who are part of our employee process has been very important. And as an example, one of the things that we upfront agreed to was that we would be paying employees for the first 21 days of the lockdown. And before we knew it, we were sitting on 35 days and that has been the commitment until we review the business continuity issue. Host communities for us are important because most mining as we know happens in rural, in rural areas and mainly around communities. And therefore for us, it was important that each business unit continues with their normal corporate social responsibility programs but then at group, we align in terms of additional capacity and support to those communities in terms of them accessing water, health facilities, and other initiatives that we have. Um, we talk about health, we care plus program that we have specifically, and that talks to the protocols that we have, not only for the employees, but also for the suppliers, and more importantly, the screening and testing. We've heard in the previous slide uh, from Archer that the big challenge around testing and the capability and capacity of governments to test is highly strained. In our situation, because we're part of a global company, we've been able to access resources that not only allow us to screen, but also to be able to test should we require to be testing employees and also extend that to the host communities. Uh, and stakeholder engagement in terms of governments, I think uh, in the last um, five, six weeks, we probably have spent more time talking to governments, local and national, to make sure that there is an integrated approach, that there is an aligned approach, and that everybody understands that you cannot survive in isolation, that your ecosystem, which could be the host community, or even your province and the rest of the country is going to be important. So it's important that we, pro we, we protect our supply chains and value, system, and value chains as well. And that has been done in a way to make sure that we are able to recover beyond the lockdown periods or even before, beyond the six to 12 months that is uh, identified as a period that the virus will be at its peak. In terms of the next normal, which is the question that you're looking to uh, to try and understand, I think the next normal is about uh, really the issue of understanding 
your governance structures because the normal way of doing strategy has been that we would ordinarily have a lot of scenarios to work with and then have time to also explore. However, now we are looking at a situation where your strategy development process is much more dynamic and also very much iterative. Uh, and the kind of mandates that we have shared and given to the people within the various business units have also been to make sure that they are also doing scenarios for those areas around them. Thank you, Nolita. Uh, Rob, same two questions. Any change in the process uh, that you're using uh, to do strategy work, long-term strategy work? And secondly, substantively, what do you expect to have changed the most that will be most impactful in the new normal for your company? And we've talked about that a little bit already. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I mean, you, you, you know, we, we have, I think, uh, you know, well-defined strategy process. Um, you know, we have our North Star, which is, uh, you know, bringing everybody the benefits of a modern connected life. And, you know, we have a rhythm of setting out, you know, what are the demographics, resources, um, what are the plans to get there, how will we allocate resources. I think generally we've always tried to, to, to hold the North Star very firmly, but to be more flexible about the route uh, that we get there and to be, you know, okay to change things on the fly. Um, it's a very dynamic sector. It's moving very fast. Um, so I think that's how we used to do things. Uh, I think as we've moved through this crisis, a few things have emerged. And, and you know, Asha touched on many of them. Um, we've had to get a lot more sophisticated in running the scenarios um, because the situation is so volatile and you want to use the time that you've got to think very clearly that if you think it'll play out in a certain direction, then you know what your, your plans and your strategies are but you need quite well-developed scenarios to the left and the right of that. The very much weaker and the very much stronger. And they almost need to be as developed as your base case scenario. So that's been, I think, a big change for us. Um, second is to form an expectation of what will those scenarios look like at quite a granular level so that you can then digest the information we're getting you know, every day, every week, every month to test that you're on the right scenario. I think the McKinsey team call that triggers, you know, and the important there actually is forming the detailed expectation so you can manage the information flow um, against that. So, you know, I think that's, that, that's uh, a little bit of, of where we are. I mean, we've got a very detailed response team. We've set up detailed program management. We've set it up as a separate structure. Um, it's chaired by our chief operating officer. So we've tried to you know, keep it a little bit separate. Um, and actually, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, in a presentation to staff, you know, they always tease me that I'm always reducing things to, uh, you know, to anagrams because my memory's so bad I can't remember them. So they said, "Well, can you make an anagram out of Corona that might at least explain, you know, how we're dealing with the topic?" So you know, it's so very simply what we're saying to our people that, you know, the number one priority is to care for our networks, our people, our customers, and our communities. The networks need to run. Our people need to be safe. We need to help our customers deal with it with the situation. Um, the O is for optimize efficiency. I think that came through very clearly. You know, when times are difficult, you've got to make every cent count, and we've got a major efficiency drive in the organization. Uh, the R is resilience. I guess came through also in the McKinsey presentation. And, and resilience is not only about being strong, but it's also about being flexible. And so that's really important. But I think very important the the second O for opportunity. 
So what we try to keep our people focused on is this is a time to, to walk very carefully because the ground is, is rough. So to have your, 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 your gaze down at where your feet are going, but also to be looking up at the horizon because the strategy is still very much in place. We will get through this and there will be opportunities in the longer term. And a lot of the opportunities for us come from this accelerated digitalization. Um, you know, the last two bits are never negative. Uh, you, you know, we're a positive company. We're Afro-optimists. Pos, Afro and, uh, you know, we really don't like, uh, you know, the complainers. And, of course, the final thing is agility. Uh, you know, we are moving at a kind of a 5G speed in this crisis. And, you know, people need to acknowledge that it's a time to be fast and to move fast. So, so that's a little bit, um, I guess, just gives you a sense of how we talk about this in the company. Our strategy is intact, but we have to build resilience, we have to look after our people, and we have to keep an eye on the horizon. Uh, I mean, I think this, the, 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 the new normal, you, you know, that's, that's a much more complex topic because in, in one aspect, the new normal is going to have, I think, weak consumer demand for quite some time. Uh, you know, if you look at the issues around the displacement of jobs, effect on economies, you know, weaker resource prices, weaker exchange rates, so I think we have to, to, to realize that this is not some, something that we get out of quickly. And in a way, the new normal is weaker consumer demand. Um, against that, I think that we will have more predictable, uh, you know, fiscal stability in the markets. Many of the African countries are accessing, you know, international, um, you know, banks and funding organizations. And that will bring, I think, a more predictable environment. Um, accelerated digitalization, that's key in our industry. You know, people will move very quickly now to, you know, to smartphones, to data, to Zoom, to working from home, call centers working from home. So, so that will change, I think, um, a lot. And also what will change is how we work internally and how we serve our customers. Um, so these are all important, um, but I think for, for a mobile telecommunications industry that is on a path to digitalization, in a way, this is more an acceleration of a, a direction that we were moving in than a completely different world. Um, you know, it's very different, obviously, if you're in some of these, you know, very, very affected um, industries. Um, and I think some of the top lessons the last while is, you know, resilience is super important. Um, you know, if, if, if every citizen in Africa had savings uh, to last him through, uh, you know, three or four months, you would not see anything like the difficulty we're in. And it's the same thing for companies. You, you know, you need to be resilient. And if you don't have resilience coming in, then for sure you've got to build it while you're in the situation. And secondly, as I said, this, uh, you know, much more deliberate and sophisticated scenario planning. Thank you, Rob. Very helpful. Uh, Funke, the same two questions, please. Uh, first, uh, how, if at all, are you doing strategy, long-term strategy, thinking differently with COVID-19 than previously? And then secondly, what do you see, have you developed a point of view about what's on the horizon in the next normal that is uh, strategically consequential for your business? Uh, thanks, Andy. Um, I think one of the things we quickly realized is this truly uh, was an unprecedented level of uncertainty. Um, to our business. And so we started using the traditional business continuity plans, crisis management, 
Um, let's stop travel, isolate people coming in so they don't infect the workforce and um, see where we go from there. And then we realized this thing was so massive and very fast moving that that exactly was not going to cut it and that the existing plans were in no way adequate to address the degree of uncertainty we faced, knowing that being a business operating um, in Africa, uncertainty is part of the game anyway and something that we have to live with on an ongoing basis. So um, our typical strategic planning process and the plans we have in place imply that you would get broad management um, participation, more than executive management, you're supported by data and facts, the planning team, a lot of benchmarks where you're distilling those ideas into focus areas. And for us, the focus is growth, both geographic and top-line growth, and also profitability, continued profitability growth of the business. And, and then you would have um, action plans to support those that you track um, and you communicate and cascade through the business. Well, once we saw how this thing was taking shape, we realized, one, we didn't know how big, how long, but we knew it was going to be very big. And so we immediately seized control and pulled it back to executive management, and executive management started driving the process. And we did that because we realized we had very limited information. The information was coming in very fast. It was non-vetted, and you needed judgment to make decisions. Not only did you need judgment on the data that you were receiving, you also needed real-time decision-making and people who were actually empowered to act on those decisions. So from something that was perhaps a little broader, a little longer term, focused on growth and profit, we switched to a very defensive focus strategy. Primary objective became safety and then sustainability of a business uh, Customers are dependent on us. Businesses um, who are going into lockdown were dependent on us um, to keep running through the period. And we needed to give them the degree of comfort that we could achieve that. Of course, with this um, nature of operations, how do you get the rest of the team on board? So we found communications has been really critical because um, you're working with the executive team who are making the decisions and taking ownership of implementation of the plans, but you have to get everyone aligned um, into what it is you're doing. We isolated some staff and embedded them to keep operations going. Um, we locked down before government did um, across our countries. Um, we're just reopening um, back our offices for business today, and we have more than 80% of our non-operational workforce continuing to work from home. Um, and we are continuing to drive strategic projects. So the team said, well, um, as, as executive team for the COVID plan in place, how about some of the investments we had on the table? And I recall that the very last thing I did before I left the office for the lockdown was sign the contract for a new data center that we plan to build in Ghana because we realized that uh, this was putting more pressure and moving the new normal certainly involved more digitalization. And if we were being called upon with customers going into COVID-19 to secure their operations, there would be a lot of learnings coming out of that and in the future, and um, digital could only be more relevant. Disruptive in a negative way, or is it all opportunity? I think it's opportunity. 
Um, and I don't know if you want me to go into the second side of it. Um, I, I don't want to look at it in a firm perspective. I think it's opportunity for our societies because um, for so long we haven't um, cut up with the rest of the world. And I think what is going on right now continues to highlight that divide. So the larger corporates, the um, high networks are able to walk from home and drive their businesses, but the majority of the population in the informal sector are not able to survive or earn a living. So how do we bring the benefits of digital uh, to the larger population and have the impact on our society, on the economy? And I think there's a role for certainly us practitioners and us as digital infrastructure providers to enable that. And we're about to transition to the society level. Uh, so thank you for anticipating that. Uh, Teresa, did you want to take a couple of questions now? Uh, we should probably limit it to just a couple. And you had a poll as well? Yes, I think that uh, this would be a good time for us to do the poll. And then we do have a number of questions and people who have been patiently waiting to ask questions. So we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Um, let's move to the poll right now. And this question today is, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? My company's original business strategy for 2020 will remain on track. So we thank you for participating in these um, polls where we have several thousand responses. Um, only about 20% of those um, who've responded agree with that statement that your business strategy for 2020 will remain on track. 17% agree, 5% strongly agree. And about 80% of you think otherwise. You disagree that your strategy is on track and 31% believe that it's, you strongly disagree. So no surprise, as we know, it has impacted every corner of the continent and the globe. And no surprise that business strategies have been tremendously disrupted as we've been discussing. We're going to go to question number two. In this time of extreme disruption and uncertainty, my company will manage to devote proper attention to its long-term success. You can strongly disagree, disagree, agree, or strongly agree. Um, over about 75% of you agree that your companies will be able to devote proper attention to long-term success. So that's a good statement. I think that we're encouraged, although this, there may be some selection bias in this question. The fact that you're joining us to hear our experts today means that um, you are already devoting attention to your long-term success, but we're happy to know of the confidence in the African business community that we get from this question. And we will go on to question three. To what extent do you agree with this statement? In this uncertain environment, my company is adapting by becoming more innovative and allowing for more creativity. The answer to this question, again, very positive. We have um, about 85 to 90% of you agree or strongly agree that your company is adapting by becoming more innovative and allowing for more creativity. Only um, about 12, 13% of you disagree with that statement in any way, disagree or strongly disagree. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, this paints a, a very good picture and I'm encouraged by what we're hearing from African business in response to these two uh, or three questions. And we will be publishing these results and disseminating them throughout the African business media to share with others, but certainly um, impressive. Again, there may be some selection bias based on those who are on this call. 
those who are not able to innovate may not be joining us. And so we may have a truer picture if we were to uh, poll everyone, not just those on this call, but it is encouraging to hear. Okay, so with that, um, Andy, would you like me to go on to some Q&A now? Yes, let's uh, just take a small number because I know that our panelists have a lot to say about the society level uh, aspects. And, uh, but let's take a couple and try to do concise answers. Sakina, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, wonderful. And so Sakita, as we mentioned, is a senior manager with Uber Eats for Sub-Saharan Africa and has a question about the digital industry. Not surprisingly, can you please go ahead with your question? Okay, great. I think I'll just read my question out. So in more developed economies, there has been a boom in services such as on-demand food and grocery delivery and also digital work tools such as Zoom and uh, WeChat for work due to how the crisis has actually shaped the world. So where do the panelists uh, see the next opportunities arising for the continent, given that not all our economies are equally developed in terms of internet penetration and other relevant in infrastructure to actually be able to sustain the working from home environment that we currently have? So the answer shouldn't just be digital industries, also industries that are not um, digital. Where do they see the opportunities lying? That is actually something I address extensively um, later on in the panel when we talk about systemic issues. And clearly, I think what this is showing that internet penetration in Africa is still not um, at levels that are high enough. In Nigeria, broadband penetration is close to 30%. We need to get that closer to 90% of the population. The infrastructure is largely not there. I noticed our National Assembly yesterday was discussing 5G. The reality is 4G services only reach less than 40% of our population. So I think what this really highlights is for the growth in on-demand, for the move to digital to happen, a lot more work needs to be done and investments need to be made in building up infrastructure. You know, of our 250 million customers, we only have 95 million active on mobile internet. So let's say around, you know, 30, 40%, and that's probably a proxy for, for most of the continent. So it's very important that we find a way to, you know, solve issues around affordability of handsets, affordability of tariffs, rolling out cost-effective rural coverage, and dealing also with some of the, you know, education and, and, and literacy issues. Um, because only really when somebody's got, you know, a smartphone or a tablet in their hand and a data connection, can they start to access everything that, you know, that the panelists are, are describing. And, and in a way, the faster we move with that, actually we can solve a whole bunch of other issues that we've got in the continent, you know, like, you know, healthcare, um, you know, education, people dealing with long commuter, long commuter distances. But probably important to say that, that, that these are not simple things to solve and, and they are only really gonna be solved, I think, in, in a partnership type environment because Yes, you need infrastructure providers, you need private sector, you need the right environment for, 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 for investment. You know, you need spectrum to be released. We need to bring down the cost of handsets. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. If it was easy, we would have solved it years ago. But for sure, at least the mobile industry managed to deliver cost-effective voice coverage to the whole continent, which I think is a major victory. And our next big challenge is, is digital inclusion. Uh, very quickly, two, two very specific ideas. One, I think the 
panel has talked about digitization, right? Not just on infrastructure, but digital services, right? It's very clear that we're going to see an acceleration of digitization across the continent. So whoever wants to position themselves to provide those services, a bunch of the fintechs and then and the, the tech companies in that space, that's one. One that's not digital, we believe in the whole manufacturing, healthcare manufacturing space, right? So right now everybody's trying to do masks and PPEs, but you're going to start to see people looking for more pharmaceutical manufacturing because it's syringes for vaccines. So I think the whole healthcare manufacturing space is also another exciting opportunity. And now we are going to go to um, Harry Thomas Ode, who is calling in from Nigeria. Okay, I was uh, I was going to my questions biological center mainly on considering the unfamiliarity of African governments with real plans, you know, policies and how to implement them. What then becomes the real value of uh, of strategies? You know, the re when I mean real values, they're important, of course, but the real value, you know, of strategies, you know, to uh, to corporates, as it were. Um, if you're operating a business in Africa, you're operating with a high degree of uncertainty. But you set out on any journey, you've got to have a direction and you've got to have that compass. So I, I think the value of strategy is having that compass in the degree with the a level of uncertainty. And that's how we typically operated. We've had to operate. I think COVID heightens the uncertainty um, but operating without a compass, no matter uh, how dynamic the situation is, just means you need to iterate and revisit and constantly get feedback on how you are doing and moving towards that direction. But it doesn't mean that you are directionless. And I think that strategy in the midst of uncertainty and this kind of crisis. Uh, Harry, in celebration of, uh, of Nigeria, I've uh, changed my background to uh, a view from our office window in, La our office window in Lagos. Um, I mean, I think it is, it, it, it is a fair comment that, that to progress, we need, you know, disciplined execution, both in, in public and private sector. Um, and I think work is required on both fronts. Uh, you, you know, I don't think it's particularly a, an issue for governments. And, and actually, if you look at the response of many of the markets to the, the, the COVID pandemic in the last six weeks, um, it shows, I think, a remarkable agility. The problem was confronted. Lockdowns were implemented. Rules were changed. Um, so, in a way, I think this this whole situation has proven that both the public and private sector can move much faster with much more coordination when you know in these difficult times. And that's okay. The, so, I think we're going to move on to our next question, and our next question comes from Danlami Gamwa. Okay, I guess my question is a, a broader a question around uh, businesses and our exposure to, let's uh, say, foreign markets, both in terms of inputs and uh, as a client base. Uh, I'm thinking I work more in the natural resource area. So, for instance, especially for uh, the, the, the panelists uh, with the Anglo-American, uh, are there any more greater thoughts of maybe domesticating a lot of the supply chain, uh, the value addition processes, and uh, maybe even the client base and the customer base, more regionally and locally, please. Thank you. I, I think this is a great opportunity for our countries in the continent who are resource rich to accelerate the discussions around uh, beneficiation and local beneficiation, because that's been one of the challenges we've always been faced with. Uh, with this pandemic, we've realized that the supply chains that are global 
also mean that we also don't have access to those markets because when those markets are closed, then we were not able to, 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 to trade amongst ourselves. Um, the, the trade, Africa trade agreement that was eventually signed last year within the African Union and the different countries there, I think will make sure that we do better as a continent to open up the markets amongst ourselves and to be able to trade within the different um, countries. But certainly from a resources environment and resource sector, uh, the whole issue around understanding how the global markets are interconnected with us and to us is going to be an opportunity. We know we have to do it. We've been talking about it for a while. So my question is, what's going to change, right? And what is the impetus that this crisis is going to help us, um, you know, what's going to drive the change? And I think on two dimensions. One is, to Lolita's point, you know, I think this crisis from manufacturers is going to really, the opportunity we have now is to accelerate implementation of the CFTA. We know it's going to create a much bigger market. It needs to be done. So hopefully that's one. And um, so I think the CFTA is, is, is a big change. The second thing that we think is really important is having more coordination at the regional level, right? I think what happens is every country is trying to do their own thing and competing with each other and the small markets, right? So we think hopefully out of this crisis, we're gonna see much more regional coordination when it comes to our industrial strategy and local beneficiation. Um, so so we, we create not bigger markets, but less competition amongst each other. Focusing on country level or even continent level, what do you see as the most potentially transformative opportunities for the society, for the continent, in which business can play a fundamentally important role, probably as a collective, rather than simply individual firms doing well what they do. As a young girl growing up in Nigeria, in Ibadan, I, I still recall my dad traveling to the village where he grew up because the rural education program was finally catching up um, with that small community and electricity services were going to be turned on for the first time. While we struggle with electricity, I think COVID-19 has highlighted the importance of telecommunications and broadband services. And I wonder if we're going to take advantage of these opportunity as leaders to bring about that transformation, um, which has impact on every sector of the economy, um, not just business, education, delivery of government services, social services, and oh, by the way, um, because it leads to increases in productivity, it results in increase in GDP as well. So for me, um, broadband and the move to digital that we see at the high end of the African society um, making that broadband service available um, to more inclusive, more members of our society uh, seems to be the one area that business and governments need to rally around. And if we look at where we are, and I'll use Nigeria as a proxy for West Africa or most of Sub-Saharan Africa, the slide on the left shows identity information in Nigeria, and the darkest green shows the local governments that are registered with more than 1 million citizens. And in a country of 774 local governments, you have less than 50 of those. So we have clearly less than 
50 million of our citizens having any kind of known identity. A few days ago, the Lagos state governor said data is critical for economic planning and governance. And I'm glad um, some of our government, government agencies and government leaders are finally coming around to the criticality of data, uh, certainly in a crisis, but really also it is for the new normal going forward. The map on the right, and you'll just see some colored dots scattered all over the picture, is data from the Nigerian regulator that shows that less than 40% of our population, which is clustered around the same areas where citizens have a digital identity, have access to 4G services. So while the rest of the world is talking about 5G services, um, majority of our populations do not even have these services available to them. So if digital is a new normal, we clearly need this kind of access. And I do believe that COVID-19 is the platform um, to ensure we get this. The week before we locked down, I chaired a committee that presented um, to the president of Nigeria a broadband plan for 2020 to 2025. And we must have been sages because we said we needed 90% broadband coverage. We needed our schools to be connected. We needed health facilities in every local government to be connected. We needed all those local governments to be connected. We needed fiber infrastructure to get there. We needed to deal with issues of affordability. We needed to deal with the cost of devices. We needed to deal with digital literacy, gender equality. And oh, by the way, there's still unserved areas that have no mobile service in Nigeria. And so those remain hotspots for security and some of the headsman issues that we've had to deal with. And we needed to address these issues and put plans in place to have this by 2025. I think 2025 is now too late. Clearly, COVID-19 shows the criticality of having the infrastructure to do this for our population. Um, because of our economic, macroeconomic profile, the challenges of affording the investment and the services as well, and this can only be achieved if private sector and public sector are unified in the vision to make this a reality and to accelerate the deployment of the infrastructure and provide the enablement that's going to make this happen. Acha, you've thought a lot about high-value opportunities for the continent in which business can play a role. You're involved in some of those efforts. Besides greater broadband access, what are some of the other um, most compelling value opportunities for the continent? As you know, we've had uh, two articles we've, we've um it's true that we're actually going to publish a third one. This is really about reimagining Africa. So how could Africa look differently going forward? And then I think for the business people is what opportunities that create for you. And we have it around reimagining society and business and government, right? So on society, I think Funke has just talked about, about digital transformation. We think there will definitely be an acceleration there. We actually think, you know, as investors start to look at, you know, coming back to the continent, you know, the level of digital penetration is going to be a key metric they're going to measure. We think, you know, crisis has highlighted the need of the urban vulnerables. A lot of money has gone into rural vulnerables, the smallholder agriculture. We've now seen how the urban vulnerables live and the plight they, they're under. So we think we're going to be quite a bit of investment there again for businesses. What can you do uh, to play in that space? Of course, transforming the Africa healthcare system, there's no question about it. Whether it's, you know, better prevention mechanisms, whether it's... Uh, um, more manufacturing, whether it's better, you know, uh, uh, um, healthcare, healthcare, healthcare setups for, 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 
for people. So there'll be a lot of investments, we think, going into the health system. On the business side, we've talked a lot about, you know, the market structure changing, so on going to that. We've talked about manufacturing. We think there are a lot of opportunities there. We think on the SME front, there's an interesting opportunity to formalize our economies, right? So a lot of the stimulus packages that are going in are really going to help the, the registered SMEs. Of the 70 million SMEs in Africa, only 20% are registered. So is this uh, an opportunity to actually help governments to, to encourage the non-registered ones to register and what kind of programs you put in place to entice them to register? And then what can you do with these SMEs and who can help governments deliver on that? And then on the government front, you know, government is definitely going to be more active and, and more intrusive in some ways, right? But the private sector has stepped up significantly in many countries to help address the crisis. So we're going to, we think we're going to see more collaboration between public and private there. A stronger social contract between citizens and governments. We've learned, we've come to accept a lot more transparency, a lot more accountability. We've seen that decisions governments make have a fundamental impact on our lives. So we think, you know, as people start to think about who they elect for, for positions going forward, they'll think about that. Um, and we also see that, you know, these social safety nets that governments have put in place, it's going to be hard to pull back from it, right? So how can governments continue to provide that kind of support? So again, it's going to have to be digital. So, you know, who can help uh, governments with that? And then finally, this all, you know, we haven't spoken about it today, but we see a lot more regional Pan-African cooperation. We're, we're involved in quite a few of these initiatives. You know, for example, you know, the 10 countries that have no ventilators today, there are another 10 that have less than 10 ventilators. Each country is trying to buy some, but we're all getting squeezed out of the market. So there's a big initiative to, to pull all of our procurement and create a procurement platform that's probably going to sit with Africa CDC so we can all speak as one voice in Africa, right? So... These are some ideas for what we think as we imagine Africa coming out of it. And for all of you, I think you should reflect on what does this mean for your business. I'd like to give Rob and Nolita an opportunity to weigh in on this as well. Um, I guess I'd like to maybe come from a, from a slightly different angle. Um, I mean, I think the broader issues with the economies in Africa are, are well known. We have too much dependency on resources. The economies are not diversified. Um, so we suffer a lot when uh, commodity prices move around. Most countries run massive, uh, you know, current account deficits because they're importing, you know, most of what's needed. Um, the South African Minister of Trade and Industries said, um, you, you, you know, we, we produce what we don't consume and we consume what we don't produce. And that is sort of a pithy way of, of explaining maybe some of the issues. And you know, in a way, I think the last 10 years or so have really been years of, of you know, of unexploited potential because the potential is undoubtedly there. You know, you've got talented people, you've got workforce, you've got agriculture, tourism, more commodities than pretty much the rest of the world combined. Um, but we've not yet managed to, in, in a very organized way, um, put the systems and processes in place to exploit that potential. Um, think of tourism as, as an example. You know, how many countries in Africa have visa on arrival programs? Such a, a small thing to make it easier for business and tourists to visit countries. Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, wonderful document adopted by many countries, has not yet come to life. You know, we'll know it's come to life when forms are simplified, when trucks aren't queuing at border posts, um, when it doesn't take three or four days to unload, you know, a truck in Port Harcourt. So, yes, we have new problems, but we also have old problems we never solved. And, and in a way, I think there's a real danger in, in moving this whole debate to 
you know, digitalization, e-commerce, 4G, 5G. I mean, that's my own industry, of course. So I'm super excited about that. But there is a danger that it deflects from, you know, some very basic things that still need to be fixed. You know, we can talk about lack of, of, of broadband coverage in these markets, but let's remember that the average electrification of households in Africa is less than 40%. Um, and it's very hard to have, uh, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence in an area where there's no roads and no power. You can't even power a device or power a tower. So I, in a way, I believe that if, if the continent was a business, we would be talking a lot about back to basics. You know, let's fix the basic processes. Let's make it easier for people to start businesses. Let's make it easier to trade interregionally. Let's simplify documentation. Let's put more discipline into the public sector. Let's create the right incentives for inward investment. Um, and, and, and that probably has the biggest impact to deliver lift. Now, of course, digitalization is a big part of that. But, um, you know, we must be really careful that we don't run you know, too fast into the new world and we just drag, you know, all of our old issues along with us. Thank you. Nolita, please. So I'm saying I need to, to continue with where Rob has left uh, in terms of a lot of the concepts that we have been talking about in the continent in particular. Uh, probably this is an opportunity for us to do something about them. I was just reflecting to the fact that the World Economic Forum Africa platform, if we were to go back and look at and listen to the last 10 years conversations, these issues would have been dealt with social compacts, private-public partnerships to make sure that infrastructure development takes place and happens uh, in the continent, but also within each one of the countries. And somehow we find ourselves now faced by this pandemic without having dealt with those issues. Um, when we look at what has happened in South Africa, specifically in the last six weeks or seven weeks of us as business working with government and labor on how to respond to this particular issue, uh, the, the main uh, opportunity that has shown us that it can be done going forward has been to work collaboratively to address the specific issues that have faced us specifically around health. We do have a business association in the country that has pulled together all the industry bodies, as an example, called Business for South Africa. And that body is the interface organization with government and labor and civil society to look at how do we respond on the health issue. So there is a current uh, work group looking after the health issue. It looks after testing and screening capacity for the country, but more importantly, they've done the work to the level of detail of even understanding how many beds do we have, hospital beds do we have in the country public-private sector, and also how much um, uh, pharmaceutical products we can be able to access. Now, that would not have happened without government having to step in and say the competition law uh, that prohibits collaboration around price and market allocation needed to be suspended to deal with this pandemic. And the way things are unfolding, it's clear, obviously, that going forward with a new normal we have to think much more deeper around how the 
social impact challenges are being met by the ordinary business collaborations and partnerships, but also with government as a partner in that process. Well, first, I want to just uh, profusely thank our panelists for a great discussion. Uh, we appreciate so much that in these difficult circumstances, you found the time to be with us for these uh, two hours. It's uh, been very profitable for everybody. Um, I'll just make a couple of, of very quick comments. Uh, the problem globally, I think, for many, many societies is we are kicking the can down the road on most of our big problems. And we are hard pressed to point out uh, many countries that, that can be said to be thriving today. Um, it's it's uh, a little bit discouraging. I think to break out of that, we need to take a page out of the strategy book and there have to be priorities. There have to be a relatively small number of highest value priorities on which consensus can be built and on which all of uh, the, the capable power centers within society um, come in as a coalition and get behind it. And that's what um, Acha was, uh, was talking about and some of the things he's involved with. Uh, I think to take one page from the experience on uh, the School of Hard Knocks of the, uh, the developed North, one thing that has to be kept in mind throughout is that if the lives of the masses of the people are not improved as a result of these initiatives, it almost doesn't matter how much other things are going on because, because that becomes a politically inherently unstable situation. And for all of the reasons that folks have been mentioning, if you don't have government doing the things that government is supposed to be doing, um, it's, it's uh, going, going to hold the whole society back. I do think that business has a critically important role to play. And I think the uh, four folks on this panel are great exemplars of a public spiritedness and a desire to play that constructive role. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is just that the critical mass would I think have to come from either regional efforts or ideally a continent-wide efforts. And so I hope that that is on the horizon uh, for Africa. Thank you very much, Andy, and all of our panelists, Funke, Nolita, Acha, Rob, you've been wonderful. And I'm sure I speak for everyone on this call when I say that um, I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, first, we want to thank all of our media partners who have helped us to get the word out about this session. You've been a tremendous um, set of partners for us. Next up, we want to thank our um, partners, our Standard Bank, who has provided support for this program. Um, thank you very much to all of the people at Standard Bank, especially Sim Shabalala. Our silver sponsors are FSDH, thank you very much, TOSA, GE, we want to thank you, Patricia Obuswa, and TD Bank, thank you, Admasu Tedese. And our bronze sponsor, KPMG, we'd like to thank you, Kunle Elibute. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.